The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, help the Holy Spirit to come upon each and every one of us as we go through our daily lives. Amen. As a lay minister, any time I'm asked to preach, I try to remind myself uh, that I always have some help, that if I listen, the Holy Spirit just might be with me. And for that, I am forever thankful. Jonah. Jonah and the whale. Have you ever heard such an amazing story? Hard to believe, isn't it? Did it really happen? We've said it before, but we should say it again, because the book of Jonah is one of those places in the Bible where this topic comes up just about as often as anywhere. We're talking about the fact that the Bible is true and the book of Jonah is also true. But that's not to say that the word true always means what some people seem to think it has. And that is that something is only true if it necessarily, literally, historically happened. Because it is entirely possible that That's a shallow understanding of the truth about truth. Surely some things in the Bible are true in the way that history is true, and that's to say that they did truly, literally, historically happen. But there are other things in the Bible that are deeply true, but in a a different way. They are true in the way that really good stories are true. For example, Jesus' parables in the New Testament. And that's to say they aren't never intended to be talking about things that are historically literally true, but rather they convey a message that is true both deeply and meaningfully. Now, here's the deal. The book of Jonah never actually up and tells you whether it wants to be thought of as a history lesson about things that truly happen, or a short story with a true message about, like, what things happened. And and I'm not here to tell you which way to go and which way to interpret the book of Jonah. But whatever you think, 
When it comes to all of that, the, the reason this book of Jonah is in the Bible is because it has a message that is deeply true. Whether or not you happen to think that it is literally true, And that message is what this sermon is all about today, starting with some background. Many scholars date the book of Jonah 50 years or so after a really, really significant period of Old Testament history known as the Babylonian exile, which was a time when the Jews had been crushed by war by the Babylonians and then carried off from Jerusalem to be slaves in Babylon which, by the way, is what is now southern Iraq, very near Baghdad. It was a traumatic, terrible experience, not just literally, but also spiritually. For those Jews who remembered the promise of God, that they were God's chosen people, and God would watch over them and protect them and bless them and give them the promised land the land of Israel, to live in. But now they were torn from that land, and you had to look pretty far to find any of them who felt all that blessed. Now, eventually, after years in exiles, the Jews were allowed to return from Babylon back to the Promised Land. But that whole experience changed them and changed them not for the better, Many of the Jews, when they returned, withdrew into themselves. They were bitter. They were mistrustful. They even were hateful, not just toward Babylonians, but toward all foreigners. Whether their foreignness was because of the color of their skin or the content of their creeds, the old vision of of Israel being called by God as a light of the nations was dead. Forget about all of them, was the attitude. It's time to make Israel great again. The character of Jonah in this story is thought by many to be representing the the nation of Israel. Like the rest of his countrymen, the prophet Jonah had no love whatsoever for foreigners or outsiders. So wouldn't you know it? The story begins with Jonah being told by God to leave his homeland and go to a nation of foreigners and outsiders and to preach God's word to them. And the particular place where God tells Jonah to go and preach is the city of Nineveh, which was located in what is now northern Iraq. In fact, the ruins of ancient Nineveh are right across the river from what is now Mosul which until just recently was the front line in the world's war with ISIS. Historically, back in the day, Nineveh had been the capital of the almighty Assyrian Empire, which back in the day had bullied and terrorized the Jews once again, and they hated them for it. They were foreigners also. For Jonah to be told to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites was... It it wasn't all unlike a Jew today being told to pack his bags for Iraq or maybe Iran or maybe even Syria and tell every one of them he knew what was on the mind of the Lord God of Israel, which Jonah had no interest in doing. 
Because why? Because he was afraid. Except you know what? Let me give you a little heads up because we find out later in the story that it wasn't the Ninevites he was most afraid of. You know what Jonah was most afraid of? That God would, in the end, instead of judging Nineveh, God would be so gathered by grace that somehow, in the end, Nineveh would be spared judgment. Jonah didn't mind. He, he might have even thought it kind of fun to go to Nineveh and say, Oh my, are, are you losers about to get yours? He just knew how God could sometimes get when once in a while people listened and said things like, Hey, we're sorry. We want to do better. He'd seen it before with the God of Israel. All kinds of tough talk until a, a little repentance comes along. And then God turns into this pathetic puddle of, come on over here and let me give you a hug. Jonah didn't want to give Nineveh a hug. He wanted to nuke him. And he didn't trust that God would actually follow through and, and make that happen. If simply a few, well, I'm sorry, got thrown into the mix. So Jonah, finding God's call was disagreeable, to say the least, runs away in exactly the other direction from where God had told him to go. Which, let's be honest, folks, we've all done that now and again. You have, and I have. For example, God calls us to forgive all who wronged us. And we find that disagreeable. So we run the other way. On to a grudge and licking our wounds and delighting as we envision ways of getting back, getting even at the person. Another example. God calls us to stand up for causes. Causes that are right. And, and for a person or people who are being wronged, we find to be disagreeable, so we run the other way once again by standing down and standing silent. Final example. God calls us to give of our time and our money for the good of someone other than ourselves, and we find that disagreeable. And so we run the other way by spending our time and our money on just about nothing but ourselves while telling ourselves that the only reason those Ninevites don't have what we have is because people like that are so lazy compared to me. I mean, every single thing I have, I've worked for and earned, haven't I? We've all been Jonah. We've all, in, in one way or another, turned from something God was calling us to turn toward. In Jonah's case, he does that by buying a ticket on a ship, heading the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. He's going to Tarshish in southern Spain, which in Jonah's day would have pretty much been thought of as the end of the world and as far from Nineveh as he could get. But God sends a terrible storm that threatens to sink the ship, which 
interestingly, is owned and operated by foreigners. In Jonah's case, he does that by buying a ticket, and, and then it's, it's going on to Tarshish and, and trying to calm the seas that have all of a sudden become a little violent. Guess what? While the members of the ship, these foreigners, are blaming themselves for the storm, Jonah knows there's only one true God. Jonah is the one God, and he's truly angry with Jonah, and Jonah knows that. So Jonah offers his life in order to save the lives of these foreigners. Throw me into the sea, he says, because I am the cause of the storm. Well, the sailors don't do that immediately. Instead, it turns out that they are the ones who are gathered by grace. They don't want to hurt this man who's a foreigner, and so instead they row harder. And while they're rowing, they start praying to God, the one true God, whom Jonah has kind of just in passing told them about. They've been touched. More irony, uh, Jonah is running from God while the foreigners are praying to God. Maybe these foreigners aren't all bad. And that's where the famous whale, after Jonah has been thrown into the sea, the whale swallows Jonah, but apparently decides not to chew his food because Jonah survives the swallow. And then from inside the big fish, he starts to pray to God for help. And after three days, in what Jonah refers to as the belly of the dead, he is, well, uh, the people who translated the Bible for us try to say it sort of nicely. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the great fish spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. But you know what? This isn't such a nice picture as that. And so for the sake of accuracy, let's just say what needs to be said. And that is, after three days in the stomach of that big fish, Jonah's barfed up on the beach. And I don't need to tell you what city he's barfed in the direction of. And as he's sitting there in a sandy puddle of whale vomit, we come to the verses from the story that we heard read a few minutes ago. The verses that tell us that Jonah is retold by God. God's not going to give up on him. Go to Nineveh. Tell them what I told you to tell them. And this time, Jonah obeys. Not necessarily with a sense of mission, but rather, I suspect, with a sense of resignation. All right, I'll go. And so now Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches. But it's a short sermon. He says simply, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he didn't preach the sermon in a pulpit at 8 and 10.30. He preached it all day long all across the city. 40 days, he says, and Nineveh is toast. Because why? 
because God is going to nuke this God-forsaken place of wicked people, putrid, vomit-like, offensive people. And there's not one single thing that Jonah tells the Ninevites they can do about this. But they do do something anyway. They repent. They come to their senses. They realize how horribly wicked they've been living. And by the thousands, with prayers and tears on their knees, they say, we're sorry. We want to do better. And Jonah, (laughs) he hands down the most reluctant prophet and preacher in the entire testament and turns out to be the most wildly successful prophet and preacher in the entire Old Testament. In God's reaction, God decides to spare Nineveh. (laughs) And Jonah's reaction, how dare God? How dare God not obliterate this wicked city? How dare God Make Jonah look bad by not doing what Jonah had said God would do. How dare God forgive the unforgivable? How dare God love these whom Jonah still despised? The point, of course, is that God does love the people Jonah despises, and God's strongest desires is not to punish, but to save, to save us all, which was very irritating painful for Jonah to hear and can also be irritatingly painful for us to hear. If we, like Jonah, think that God hates the same people we do and they're sure going to get theirs in the end, but God has a different plan. You see, wickedness that Nineveh had springs not from the fact that you're not like me or they are not like us whether they are Ninevites or Arabs or Norwegians or Haitians or liberals or conservatives or Muslims, Democrats or Republicans or us. Wickedness springs not from the fact that you are not like me or they are not like us. Wickedness rather is when people are not like what God desires us to be. And God wants the wicked to turn from their wickedness by all means. And sometimes we need to say that very clearly. Sometimes we need to hear that too. We need someone to say it to us clearly that God wants the wicked to turn from their wickedness. But we also need to hear and say something else very, very clearly. There's no one so wicked that God has given up on them, not you and not me. Not those Ninevites in spite of what they've done. Not your neighbor in spite of what she's done. Not that lousy so-and-so in spite of what he's done. And not you in spite of what you've done or me in spite of what I've done. In God's plan, in, in God's kingdom, fortunately, there's a place for sinners. In God's plan and and in his kingdom, there's a place for foreigners and for outsiders. In God's plan and, and also in his kingdom, there's a place for your enemy. 
Don't you just hate that, the thought of that? Well, as a matter of fact, to be honest, at one point or another, you and I probably do sometimes. Until, and instead of sitting around in a putrid mess that you or I have made, or sitting at church listening to the story of a mess that Jonah made, it finally occurs to us that a God in in whose kingdom there's a place for them, there's also a God in whose kingdom there's a place for us, a place which is best lived not by hiding self-righteously behind a dark door, but rather inviting every single person that you can, showing every single person that you can that they also can turn around and that you can turn around and come home to love that has a place not only for you, but for them too. Amen.